Hi, Simon Hill here. Enjoy our podcast. If you'd like to help us keep delivering the sort of quality football chat you want, then you can show your support by making a donation. Big or small, however much you can afford, we appreciate all your help and every cent will be ploughed back into improving production. Thanks in advance from all of us at Shim, Spider and so much more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Craig Moore. What a piece. Beautifully struck home by Craig Moore. And the Australian supporters go wild in Stuttgart. You're with Shim, Spider, and so much more. Take it away, fellas. Yes, hello again. Great to have you with us for episode 27 of Shim, Spider, and so much more. Wow, how time flies. We've launched a new logo this week, part of a raft of changes that will hopefully improve the show and your experience of listening to it. Big show coming up today. We have some exclusive news on the new, uh, new National Second Division. We'll be reviewing all the weekend action as per usual and in the final part of the show, our special guest is none other than Ange Postacoglu. Can't wait to hear from Ange a little later. In the meantime, my two cohorts are in situ and Zelko Kalatz, wonder of wonder, miracle of miracles. You're finally playing football. How did you get on? We did. We just finished. I just got back home. We drew 1-1. We copped an, uh, We actually scored an own goal in the 93rd minute oh. to make it 1-1. <laughs> so that was a bit yucky poo on the road. But it was minus five degrees. Uh, it was a long time between drinks for a lot of the players. So take the point, move on and get ready for Wednesday's game. I bet you're absolutely relieved just to be back doing what you're paid to do. Mate, I tell you, you could see on the players' faces, they, they were really excited. Uh, the club was excited. Both teams happy to be out there playing football again. It's going to take some time to get everyone up to speed with their... The fitness, obviously, but uh, better playing football and getting fit that way than not playing at all. Absolutely. Maura, you stuck your neck out, I see, this week in the Daily Record in Scotland, predicting 100 points for Rangers in the title race, which would break your all-time club record. You were a part of that team that uh, set the yeah. old mark. And I've got a long neck to, to stick out, let me tell you. <laughs> um, I think back in 2002, 2003, we, we uh, achieved 97 points. Uh, Rangers, although they did drop points uh, against Motherwell, um, they had a draw, uh, 1-1. But currently on 66 points. And the story that I've done in the daily record was, it's not something that in-house I'll be thinking about, but the way that they've played um, and the way that this season has gone, it's certainly a big possibility. 
Okay, we will see if you're right. Uh, let's get into it then with Hard Talk. Hard Talk. Hard Talk is brought to you by Streamgate, one of Australia's first live streaming companies operating since 2008. They focus on virtual and hybrid sessions broadcasting to unlimited online audiences worldwide by either a secure private stream page or publicly on social media. Live streaming allows social online engagement as viewers are able to communicate back to the presenters in real time while social distancing. So should you require a small personal event or business level webcast, then please go to streamgates.com.au or you can find them on Instagram. Guys, let's uh, start with some rather sad news this week and uh, pay tribute, if we can, to Frank Arrock, a former Socceroos coach who passed away this week at the age of uh, 88. He had six years in charge of the Socceroos uh, during the 1980s. I don't know whether you guys would have come across Frank. I'm pretty sure you would have. What are your memories of him? Yeah, he was well, well ahead of his time, wasn't he? Uh, he had all the tricks even back then. He was a very liked man by all players, uh, very grumpy, very aggressive, but got the best out of players. Uh, I remember him for the way he used to scream at players to get the best out of them. And his tactics, Maury, of keeping the grass long for away teams, going to playing in hot areas, you know, that's all gone from football now. But back in Frank Arrow days, they were all around. Great man, Every- sadly lost. Every advantage counted for, for Frank Arrow and... You know, unfortunately, um, another um, sad loss. Uh, but from my, I'm a little bit younger than you, Spides, but I just remember the, the energy uh, and what a character he was um, in everything that he'd done, on the sideline, in his press conferences. He was a great story for the media because he was so passionate about the game and he guided a lot of fantastic um, socceroos uh, through their careers and gave them the opportunity to go on to, to bigger and better things. So... Rest in peace to Frank Arrock. Yeah, just the latest of uh, a string of high-profile football identities that we have, uh, <coughs> excuse me, tragically lost over the last 12 months. So let's move on and talk about the weekend's A-League action, uh, starting with the big game, the Sydney Derby. It finished 1-1. Don't know whether you thought that was a fair result. And Spider, it, it took a goalkeeping error to, uh, to give Wanderers a, a share of the spoils. Yeah, Redders definitely won't be happy with that uh, with that goal. But obviously, goalkeepers, we do all make mistakes. And uh, he'll pick his chin up and move on, dust himself off because he's been a saviour for Sydney over the past few years, but just wasn't that night. I, I thought the game was very dull in the first mm-hmm. half, um, especially for a Sydney derby. I, I thought, with being the first derby... Uh, back after COVID, I thought there'd be a lot more aggression, a lot more intensity to 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 take the front foot forward. And both teams were a little bit dull for me. I don't know, was it warm, Simon? I don't know how warm it was. Yeah, look, it's it's been pretty warm in New South Wales uh, all weekend. So that might have had uh, something to do with it, that's for sure. What about you, Maury? Yeah, look, I'll probably just pick up on the, the intensity in terms of what, what Spider you're saying there. A derby, it kind of seemed a little bit as if both teams uh, gave each other a lot of respect, uh, stood off one another. It, it wasn't really a combative uh, kind of uh, derby that you kind of you see throughout the world. And that was uh, something that probably I'd like to see more of in all Australian derbies, more intensity, uh, really competing for uh, the advantage within the game. 
Um, fair result in the end, I thought. But yeah, Redder's mistake. Trezzi's heavily involved. Penalty for the body check on Ninkovic, but also managed. Was it a to, pen? Was it a pen? Yeah, yeah, I think it was. I think it was. He knew what he was doing, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. It was so, it was soft, but he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. Okay. Um, just a word on the W League derby that uh, that followed. A, a general points. Um, the stadium sort of emptied. I think there were about fifteen thousand in for the men's game, but it really emptied for for the W League game afterwards. Two part question. First of all, should these double headers be a thing of the past? And secondly, is this something that the FFA or blimey, I can't call them that Football Australia? And all the A-League clubs need to address. Because we've got a Women's World Cup coming up in three years' time. We know what's happening in Europe. Big crowds are starting to watch women's football now in England, in Spain, in Germany, in France. And yet we're still not driving supporters to watch the W League. Surely, if there is a legacy for the Women's World Cup in three years' time, it's that our domestic competition thrives on the back of it. Yeah, not an easy one. Uh, look, you would have thought that it would have got promoted better. Look, we're probably not promoting the A-League that well, uh, let alone the W-League. And I think it actually fitted in perfectly with the uh, double-header. Uh, crowd was already there with the COVID situation. But most of them expected... left, Spider. <laughs> yeah, I know, but uh, pe people's choice, wasn't it, really? Uh, or did they not know the game was on? I, I actually don't know. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm over here. The marketing is very poor. If I don't actually look every day to see if there's an A-League game happening, I wouldn't have a clue that there's a game happening. Well, mm -hmm. I, I suppose it's not going to be on the back page of the Greek press, <laughs> to be fair. But, uh, but I take your point, Spider. Um, Maury? Yeah, look, I, look I, I personally think that the future of our game, uh, the, the double-headers, uh, will be a thing of the past, Simon. Uh, mm -hmm. I think with the Women's World Cup, um, you know, with that game growing so quickly, uh, I think that we should be looking at standalone fixtures um, where, where both sort of like sets, male and female, get their, their support base and, and really get out and support that particular game or that particular team. Uh, I think that that is the way forward, not the, the kind of the women slash men doubleheader. I, I don't think that has got much legs moving forward for the future of Australian football. Um, just on the W League, um, not great to see that... There were some problems in the Melbourne derby with, uh, with fans throwing bottles and stuff uh, between City and, and Victory. But uh, the goal by Lisa Devanna, I don't know whether you saw that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she's 36, but clearly she's still got plenty to offer, even the national team, Maury. Well, Simon, this goal showed for me so many qualities. Uh, there was great awareness, the way that she lets it go through her legs and, um, and, and stoops the defender. Her pace her directness um, she then gets outside and she shows um, great composure and execution to score a fantastic goal across the goalkeeper for, I think it was her 40th W league goal, yep. Lisa Devant. So huge effort, um, but not showing us anything we haven't seen many, many times before. Didn't uh, Melbourne victory beat Melbourne city a couple of weeks ago, six nil or something. That's right. That was and the game. Melbourne, and, and Melbourne city beat, Melbourne victory 3-2 the other day? Yes. How does that happen? <laughs> well, because we're in this situation with COVID that uh, teams can't travel interstate at the moment. So we're playing sort of back-to-back -back fixtures 
uh, within yeah, a couple of weeks. Um, it's not ideal, but I, to be fair, this is this is one where you can't really lay uh, the the greatest portion of blame at the authorities because they've they're, they're trying to keep football going, but they're unable to to move teams into states. So they're they're sort of doubling up the fixtures. Um, just just one on on Sydney FC, the men's team. Before we move on to uh, Melbourne City, Western United. Uh, Babo has returned to the A-League with, with the Sky Blues. Um, we know how good he was first time around. The old saying is, uh, Maury, you should never go back. Um, yeah. can, can he be the same again? I mean, they obviously needed a striker with LaFondra going. They needed a bit of competition there. But um, can he be the same? You've asked the right person, Simon, because I left Rangers and went back and probably went back to, to, to more successful times. Look, it does happen, uh, you know, and, and Bobo's a great player. Um, and I'm sure he'll go back and do a great job for Sydney FC. I think what we touched on a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks when Danny was on, Danny Townsend was, uh, um, you know, with Trent Baholja and his progression. That's my concern sometimes when you have the, the older player coming back. But Bobo, we know, is a fantastic professional, knows the club, knows the culture, knows the values. Um, you can go back and you can be even more successful. Okay, we shall see if he is. Uh, Melbourne City 2 Western United won, uh, spite of your old club, uh, defeating Western United, I think, for the fifth time in a row. And Jamie McLaren, again, the Johnny on the spots um, with the tap-in for the winner late on. Yeah, great goal, too, for the winner. Uh, Western United, I thought, were a little, little bit unlucky. But the difference between this derby, was, there was a bit of tension all mm. over the place. It was, uh, it was good. Maybe the weather in Melbourne was a bit colder, so they could play at a higher tempo. Um, I, th I thought it was... Quite a good entertaining game. I thought the draw probably would have been fair because I thought Western United were actually a little bit better. But City, they're just uh, slowly getting the results more. They're not performing fantastically, but they're getting the results. And, so we're uh, still in with the shout spides with our early predictions for Melbourne City? <laughs> yeah. Matt, if you win and don't play too well, it's, it's not bad, is it? Um, Newcastle Jets uh, losing at home to MacArthur FC. The Jets gave it a good, uh, a good go late on, but uh, MacArthur dug in. Uh, some goal by Loic Puyo, the, uh, the overhead kick. Wow, he looks yeah. a talent, doesn't he? Yeah, he had a, it was a great finish, wasn't it? An overhead um, with, his, with his right foot, I think, Simon. And then he, the, the assist, which is a corner with his left foot uh, mm. for um, uh, striker Derbyshire's header, which was a great header. Carter got off to a wonderful start, didn't they? Um, I think, you know, we've heard Milicic come out and say a, a little bit like a basketball team. They couldn't run the game out. Probably the latter stages have got stretched a bit. So that'll be something that he'll be working on in terms of the conditioning ongoing for the players, but to try and keep the game compact. Uh, but they ended up getting a, a good result and it's been a positive start for MacArthur. Sure has. Um, let's move on, guys, and talk about... The National Second Division, uh, a progress report has been released today by the AAFC, the umbrella group that, uh, that takes care of uh, all the MPL clubs and is, is looking at uh, the modelling for this new National Second Division. Let, let's pick out the bullet points for discussion. Uh, the key headline, first of all, is that it's affordable and feasible. The key points are these. Uh, 12 clubs to be selected to form a second division, kicking off in 2022. That's the aim. It will be, and I quote, a modest, financially responsible league, bringing together the best of the MPL clubs with a national footprint. Uh, it's going to be founded on elevating existing semi-pro clubs to a professional environment. They did consider two conferences, North and South, 
um, plus the existing MPLs with a, an extension of the MPL final series. But they've decided that the best model is a national competition uh, of 12 months. Point two, criteria. Uh, facilities to align with current FFA Cup requirements. That's a 3,000 plus capacity of the stadiums with corporate facilities, coaching staff with A license accreditation, uh, demonstrated financial capability, and what they call deep connection to support uh, within their community and a comprehensive uh, women's program in place. The clubs will be selected for their record on the park, their strong membership base, their base of sponsors, and that connection with local communities. In terms of the general uh, second division, it will be overseen by an advisory board comprising FFA and AAFC, supported by steering committees, and promotion from the NPL to the second division uh, will kick in right from the start, one team up, until the competition has 16 teams, and then it will be followed by promotion and relegation uh, the women's national second division to kick off in 2025 and they're aiming for promotion relegation with the a-league by 2028 now here's the key bit the costs now they reckon the whole league will cost 3.3 million that includes centralized travel costs uh, estimated $121,000 per club for the season that's with the 12 club model uh, that excludes any revenues from OTT streaming, broadcasting, gaming data, etc. There'll be a $200,000 participation fee and clubs will require an annual budget of between $850,000 and $1.6 which they see as achievable. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, guys, and I've gone for quite some time, but those are the main bullet points. But what are your thoughts? You've had the chance to have a look at uh, the report. Uh, we all want a second division. How feasible is it? Look, personally, we all know what I think about the second division. Uh, I think it has to go ahead. It's great to see that these clubs have actually put their hands up and said, we are ready. Feasible, I'm 100% sure they're feasible, especially the clubs that actually qualify to be in the second division. Um, and you know, we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, someone put something on Twitter and said I was going against what I was saying. I wasn't going against what I was saying because the clubs want a second division, but they're not ready for promotion into the A-League. Let them get prepared to go up into the A-League. And I think this is exactly what they're saying. Give us time to prepare ourselves to go up in the A-League and see how it works. So if we can get this underway in 2022, I think this is unbelievable. Maury. Yeah, I agree with you, Spider. I think um, it's something that, you know, I think everybody in Australian football have been desperate to, to see come to life sooner rather than later because we know that it will be a huge injection to the whole of football. I think the most important thing that I always uh, come back to, which I was really keen to, to see explored, was the OTT, what the future broadcast is going to be and, and what that looks like. Be interested to know, Simon, where um, this sits in terms of any future discussions around about broadcast and I'm hoping that it's packaged together with fresh discussions because I believe that that's a real opportunity to to bring some serious dollars into our game. You mean um, with, I, with the A-League as well you mean? Yes yes yeah. very much so I actually think it adds so much more value hmm. to um, to our product that, that that whole of football product so that that's fantastic the the promotion um, brilliant they want to get up to 16 teams I love that I was interested to know what um, 
support by steering committees and who that um, who the type of people that are going to be sitting on these committees um, are because I believe that there needs to be people that that um, are separate that, that don't stand within the, uh, the business so therefore can always put the game f first in terms of um, you know the decisions for the future of the game the costing yet yeah, seems to work there, there seems to be a lot of clubs that are willing to to go down that path um, I mean I think it's I think it's great and I think that we do want to see it it's great that it looks like it's just around the corner we've also got the women's part of it for the national second division uh, kick off for 2025 now we've got to bring it to life yeah there is no doubt. Um, look, I, I can only echo your thoughts. I, I'm obviously fully in favour of this. I think the sooner we have it, uh, the better. But of course, it has to be financially viable. The clubs uh, or the AAFC says that it is. Uh, they say that the clubs will carry the majority of the commercial and reputational risks, which is, let's be honest, the same as the A-League is now, that it's got its uh, independence. Um, and crucially, it's going to create 280 to 350 uh, new semi-pro positions uh, for footballers. Now, the key there is, is semi-pro. So I think the vast majority of players are not going to be full-time professionals. Is that going to be a sticking point, particularly with the PFA? I, I don't see why it has to be a sticking point, especially for the development phase of the league. I mean, if, if these guys are training... Let, let, Let's remember, the A-League players are only probably training four sessions a week before they play. Basically, without being disrespectful, they're, they're semi-pros. So, in the second division, they're semi-pros because the budget's lower, so they actually want to build the product. And I think it's a very smart way of beginning to be a second division. Instead of actually putting all your eggs in one basket and going overboard with costs and, and what everything's going to be affected by let's take it one step at a time get it up and running 850 to 1.5 million it's a lot of money for a semi-pro league yeah you know what i'm interested in um in terms of we're talking about a semi-professional league for the national second division simon is how does that then look in terms of the recent white paper that was released around about the, um, the transfer system hmm. um, and what that looks like because obviously in terms of There'll be people that may be playing the national second division that maybe don't move to the A League that go directly overseas. And mm -hmm. I'm just trying to think about what that that that, that looked like again in that document, um, whether they would be considered amateur status or professional status because it's in between. They'll still yeah. be under contract. Yeah, that's the key, isn't it? If if the yeah. contracts are there and the system is in place, then uh, the fees should follow on. J just on the money. Uh, the paper says, the report, I should say, says that at present, MPL clubs require up to $950,000 per season to take part. That's their estimate. <clears throat> I have no evidence to say that's true or untrue, so we've got to take that word for it. Um, so if that's the case, then going up to an annual budget of between 850, which is lower, and 1.6 million doesn't seem too much of a leap, does it? No, and, and what, we, what we spoke about before, the travel is probably the most. That's cost. it, yeah. That's the most cost. And I think if you're prepared for it, look, uh, if you're prepared for it, you can book things in advance. I think it's viable. I, I think it's something that just has to happen. Like these people, these clubs are dying for it. The supporters are dying for it. The, the game is dying for it. 
Yep. So we actually need to start at ASAP. And it's great that we have all these people that are leading the way for this second division. I think it's brilliant. Totally agree. Um, and as for promotion and relegation with the A-League, well, they're saying 2028. I know that the A-League clubs are very lukewarm on that idea, but surely the key is you get the second division up and running, you make it viable, you make it work, you attract interest in that competition. And then the push for promotion in the first instance will come from the fans and the football community itself. Um, so I, I think it's great. The, uh, the process will continue. Uh, consultation is now to take place with uh, Football Australia, the State Federations, A-League clubs. Their final report is due, we're told, on the 2nd of April, and it will be presented to Football Australia by Easter. So we'll keep a watching brief on that, and uh, fingers crossed we get a second division in 2022, because I think we all agree uh, we need it. A um, couple more points, guys, before uh, we move on overseas. Um, Daniel Arzani looks as though he's on the move from Utrecht. His loan about to be cut short. Uh, his coach there, Rene Hake, saying he's been a disappointment, which uh, is not great, is it? Because he's our golden boy. Hmm. Yeah, he's found it tough in Europe, hasn't he? Um, you know, uh, obviously he had that injury more when he went to Celtic. Uh, what, it was probably a step too big for what he had already done in Australia with the amount of game time. He probably needed to go to a, a step less to get more game time. And then from there, obviously, he went to Utrecht. And it's not easy, guys. He's, he's 19. It's not easy to, to be a starting player in these European clubs. And I think some of our players back home and some people back home think that someone who shines in Australia for 10 games He's going to go to Europe and be an automatic first 11 player. And he's found out that it's not that easy. Spidey, you know what disappoints me most uh, from uh, my background in terms of the little bit of digging that I've done is the feedback that's come back on Daniel Azani. Don't worry about whether he's a good enough footballer or not. That he's got a poor attitude. Mm. And for me, that is, is, uh, is not good to hear because that's why he's probably going back to Australia. And if he's been... Um, if they're the kind of things that are kicking about in Europe that he's got a bad attitude, he will not get another, another crack at Europe. No, and the scary thing is, more he's got the Olympics coming up. He's got his whole career ahead of him. And you know, with the way football is at the moment, you know, coaches want people with attitudes, the right attitude to do everything that's asked of them, to do everything that's asked of them for the team to get results. And if you don't, they will go against you very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, hope Daniel Arzani finds himself a new club. There is uh, the suggestion you may come back uh, to play in the A-League, maybe even at uh, Melbourne City. We shall see. Um, Jackson Irvine, conversely, has finally got himself a new club. He's signed for Hibernian. I see he's been training with Harry Kuehl at, uh, at Oldham, yeah. which is, is a good bit of Aussie solidarity. But good to see Jackson get a club, and it's at a good level as well, Maury. You know Hibs pretty well. Yeah, I do. Uh, and I... Again, I don't want to be negative on Jackson Irvin, uh, but he's wasted six months of football, Simon. And he had opportunities, um, and I'm saying that potentially got a little bit ahead of himself. Um, you know, with COVID and all the changes, he did have deals on the table that were, um, that were good deals, but felt that if he waited, that there's something better out there. By waiting, he was six months out of the game. He'll come back and do a great job with Hibs, and that's what we need Jackson to be doing. It's just unfortunate that he's missed six months 
uh, during that process. Yep. Well, it's uh, good that he's he's finally got himself a club. But uh, you're right; it's it's been a long time, and of course he'll be short of match fitness as well. But uh, let's hope he gets in that first team sooner rather than later. One or two other items of news before we move on. Uh, Graham Arnold revealing this week that the March World Cup qualifiers against Kuwait and Nepal will not happen without government intervention. Um, same as what was required, of course, for the Australian Open. And we're seeing how that's panning out at the moment in terms of uh, the COVID tests. And, of course, the players can't come back into Australia at the moment without doing quarantine. So really tough for, for the national teams at the moment. Also looks like on the back of that, uh, Copper America may be out in 2021. Uh, with a whole bunch of World Cup qualifiers uh, still to play, including against Taiwan and, and uh, Jordan in June. And we've got the Olympics as well, if they go ahead. Goodness me, this is all a, a complete mess, isn't it? When are we going to get these fixtures played? Yeah, it's a scary situation, not, not just for football. I think uh, for sport in general, uh, it's crazy. And, you know, I feel for the Socceroos and, and Arnie because, gee, they had some good games like this yeah. year, some really great tournaments to actually prepare for and just to see it all go, get washed away with, with COVID like everything else that's happened in the world is really, really sad. Yeah, it is. We're really looking forward to seeing uh, uh, the Socceroos take on the best that South America has to offer. We don't get too many opportunities uh, to do that in a tournament-type situation. Uh, talking of which, before we move on, a word about the Women in Football Tournament, which is being organised for the Central Coast of New South Wales on the 11th and 12th of September of this year, COVID permitting, of course, uh, which will see the winners awarded the Waltzing Trophy. That's a reference to the 1975 women's team uh, that finished third at the inaugural Asian Cup for women, but which has not yet been formally recognised as an Australian team, even though they did compete as Australia. It's going to be a 16-team competition, a group stage and a knockout phase. Every team is guaranteed four matches. Uh, the lower-placed teams will compete in parallel in the knockout stage uh, for the Pat O'Connor Trophy, uh, named after the captain of that 1975 team. Uh, entry forms for interested sides can be found at womeninfootball.org.au. That's womeninfootball.org.au. All right, let's uh, head overseas. London calling. London calling. Yeah, well, let's uh, start in the Premier League. Uh, CEO of the Premier League, guys, Richard Masters, uh, telling players this week they've got to practice safe goal celebrations. <laughs> players uh, copying it for hugging and uh, high-fiving after scoring goals. Is this feasible? And I have to say... This gets my goat a little bit. Not that, not that he's wrong in general. That obviously they've got to be careful with COVID. But when you see government ministers flouting their own rules, why is it that footballers are copying it for celebrating a goal? It's pretty difficult uh, not to let that emotion get away with you, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Very Liverpool. Is, oh, Simon, Liverpool, Liverpool. The last three games in the Premier League have not had to worry about it. They haven't scored. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm glad you said that, not me. But, but yeah, it's 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 crazy, you know. I mean, because again, it's like the emotion, or you know, scoring a goal in a football match is to to be able to celebrate with your teammates, and um, yeah, it's just really, really strange circumstances that we live in. And um, you know, you got to try your best to listen to the to the guidelines and be responsible. But 
I, you know, I just think that celebrations on the field and these are players that are already in a bubble that are going through processes on, like you're going through spies at your club every two, every three days. So it, they're actually within the safest environment. You, they've probably got more risk of going to Tesco's and getting their shopping. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say that, more. You, you hit the nail on the head. These guys are getting tested every two and three days. Uh, so that, in, that group of players that are actually playing, that are celebrating together, they're actually all negative because they've been tested. That's why they're allowed to play. So, look, it probably looks bad elsewhere, but how else do you bloody celebrate? What are you supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a tough one for football at the moment. But they've got to be careful, obviously, because they are being allowed to continue playing at the moment by the British government. And uh, they've clearly uh, got an eye on those uh, celebrations. Uh, I think they get tested twice a week, don't they, at the moment, the players. Um, some player news before we talk about the Premier League games. Uh, Wayne Rooney's retired from playing, new manager of Derby County on a full-time basis. Uh, be interesting to see if he can be as good a coach as he was a player. Um, Yaya Toure looking for a player coaching role. Well, how about Australia? That would be good. Get him down mm. to the A-League. Um, and Mesut Ozil, guys, is finally to leave Arsenal, ending that uh, long-running saga and uh, about to join Fenerbahce. Huge club. Well, I, I read somewhere he wants to play in Turkey and he wants to play in America. Is that right, Maury, that I, I read that? And he's now going to Fenerbahce. It was a massive club. Uh, it'll be a big hit over there. Still a lot to offer. Turkish football, very, very difficult. But uh, good luck to him because he's done it tough a little bit at Arsenal. Uh, whether, whether you think it's right or wrong, he's still a very good player and a lot to offer. Totally agree. Um, how about this that sums up modern football, guys? Chelsea's longest-serving player left this week. He'd been there for 10 years. You'd imagine he'd be a club legend, wouldn't you? His name, Lucas Piazon. I'd never even heard of this guy. He's been there a decade. He's had eight loans and played just three first-team games. And he's finally shipped out and has gone to Portugal to sign for Braga. Doesn't that sum up football in the 21st century for us? That's brilliant. I remember Ancelotti went to Everton in his first week and they asked him about some player and he, and he had to go to his interpreter and say, Who's that? <laughs> uh, I've never heard of the guy. Good luck to him. Where's he going? Portugal. Yeah. He's going Braga. to Braga. Braga. But Spides, I've seen it. So I met with another Aussie, Simon, at uh, Watford, Richard Johnson mm. uh, at Watford. And we were speaking about, you know, their business model as well. And Man City, you'll know Chelsea, as, as you've mentioned there, like a lot of players don't even actually play a game for, for, for the first team at these particular football clubs. Yet, they have all these loan deals. They do well in other clubs, other countries, and they make a lot of money off them. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a business model. It's a business plan that actually sits outside of their Premier League teams. That's um, right. I forget the player at Watford. He didn't play for Watford. They sold him for, for £14 million to Villarreal. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think the, the, the one that summed it up for me, I, I remember calling a Champions League game about 12, 18 months ago. Uh, and don't uh, ask me who the, the, the club that Sydney were playing uh, was, but they had a, a player called Mix Diskarud, um, who played very well in Sudan. I think he scored as well against Sydney FC. And Anthony Caceres was playing for Sydney FC. And both were on, they were technically teammates because they were both Manchester City players. <laughs> I, I dare say they'd never even met each other, um, which, uh, yeah, as we say, sums up football at the very top level in uh, the 21st century. Um, let's talk about the Premier League games 
um, across the weekend, starting with uh, the big one overnight, which was a bit of a fizzer in the end. Liverpool, Man United, uh, nil-nil, as you rightly said, Maury. Liverpool haven't scored for three matches now. They've picked up 14 points from nine games. They're in a little bit of a, a hole at the moment. Um, they had a team meeting to try and refocus ahead of the United match, but uh, didn't seem to work. Yeah, it was a it was a good match uh, though, Simon. Liverpool were very good in the first half, and probably could have had Man United trailing by by one or two. But I think what what's happening now for Liverpool is where they were, um, I guess, really clicking in that final third, and everybody knew it was automatic. Now it just seems to be a little bit clunkier, um, and 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 not flowing as well as what it um, it has done previously. Um, Man United, to be fair, probably gave Liverpool a lot of respect in the first half, but did come out in the second half. And Spides, uh, I'm pretty sure you, you would have seen the highlights um, because you were travelling. But Man United had two of the best chances. Pogba had a great chance. Um, and I think there was another chance that fell to... Oh, who was it? Someone else. It's just gone off my head. But Man United actually uh, performed quite well and will probably feel that it was a missed opportunity, Simon. Spider? Take, taking a point from Anfield, Man United will be delight, delighted. Once again, their away record is scary, Man yeah. United. Um, can anyone believe they're top of the table? Seriously, yeah. they are top of the table. I, I couldn't believe it. I went and had a look at the ladder, and I seen they were top of the table. I thought, where's Man City? Because they, are the, hottest, they are the hottest team at the moment in the Premier League. Well, yeah. it's City... Sorry, if City win their game in hand, uh, Maury, after smashing Crystal Palace overnight by four goals to nil, then City will be top of the league. Yeah, City, you'll be—I mean, you'll be grinning from ear to ear, Simon. They're—they're they're really um, hitting their straps. Uh, very convincing uh, here in the UK today against uh, Crystal Palace, four nil. Um, one, two, two Manchester teams back. You know, like it's—it's. It's, for me, there's just so many teams. And, and, what, and what I'm really enjoying this year is there's now four or five teams, Simon, that, that are that close that's really making this premiership um, season very exciting. You know, yeah. Liverpool have run away with it. You've got Leicester up there. You know, you've got, you've got Man City. You've got Man United. Um, it's, it's, it's brilliant watching this season. And I think it's going to be an interesting uh, play out for the rest of the season. There'll be a few twists and turns. I still don't know. Tottenham as well. It's a special one. Can he be really special? With the cup and a, and, a, and a league double, it's just there's a lot of stories that still could come out this season. Well, it is the year of the one, and Spurs normally win a trophy in the year of the one. I hope it's not going to be the league cup final. Um, at the other end of the ladder, uh, Newcastle boss Steve Bruce seemingly is at war with his own players. How about this for a quote? Um, after the loss to Sheffield United during the week, he said this. We were absolutely frigging hopeless the other night. We were absolutely shite. <laughs> I mean, talk about telling it like it is. And it can be a risky strategy, that spider, going public, having a crack at your own players. Yeah, uh, Ken, uh, I, I actually sadly watched that game. And they, were, <laughs> and they were shite, by the way. And Sheffield, you know what? Sheffield United, fair income, you can actually tell that they're a team that's low in confidence because they went one goal up and the last 15 minutes, Maury, oh, mate, they were hanging on for dear life. They were trying to even score against themselves like we did tonight. They were doing anything. <laughs> yeah. They parked the bus, did they? Uh, mate, they were doing all sorts. It was crazy. and You could just see it was a team low of confidence. Yeah. Uh, but Newcastle... Newcastle's not one of my teams. I, I'm sorry. I just... 
don't find them to play an attractive brand of football. And yeah. Steve Bruce has come out and been honest. Uh, and some sometimes it's good for the players to hear. You know, you know the bit that I was kind of a little bit taken aback with with his, uh, some of the other comments were in that story, Simon, is that he he wants to now stop listening to the players and get playing the way that he wants to play. And I just felt that really a strange comment from a from a head coach uh, suggesting that maybe players are influencing the style of play or the way that they're playing. I found that really, really weird, Spides. I don't know whether you've seen that and what you think about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a worry when they start saying that. Um, I, I thought you're the manager. You're supposed to have a grip of the squad and, the, and your style of play. And when things do go wrong, sadly, the manager takes the blame for it. You can't actually pass the buck. Simple as that. And he's got, more. he's got 30 players to pick from. Let's be honest. Mate, if someone's not good enough and not doing what you want them to do, mate, they're out. And the next player gets his opportunity. Well, he's got to do it pretty soon because uh, the heat is starting to ramp up on both Newcastle and Steve Bruce. Uh, last one for this segment. Maury will come to you. In Scotland, uh, Celtic getting a bit of stick at the moment in all uh, parts of the media. Adrian Durham on Talk Sports saying people in Scotland are sick of them. Ewan Murray in The Guardian, uh, Celtic's plasticine empire is collapsing amid arrogance and awful decisions. This is all on the back, of course, of this uh, midwinter trip to Dubai that ended up uh, with a positive COVID test that affected 13 players and three coaches, including Neil Lennon. And uh, they didn't do themselves any favours on the pitch at the weekend either. No, and you, you've been quite generous saying that they've, they've copped a little bit of stick. My word, that's been, uh, it has been relentless over here. What, so they've gone, they've, they've had this trip and then obviously come back and had the, you know, the, the 15 players, staff that have had to, to quarantine. Um, if they went out and beat Hibs and beat Hibs convincingly on their return, Simon, it probably would have been um, spoken about, but not to the level that it has. Um, they've been absolutely belted in the press. Um, they've struggled, uh, obviously. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Two draws since a return from that. So that's kept that story bubbling along. Uh, from some of the bits and pieces that I'm hearing, I'm hearing that maybe the midweek game for Neil Lennon will be the last game. There's talks of um, already new coach coming in Thursday morning. So it'd be interesting to see whether... I'm on the good oil or whether it's just it's just rumours, mate. But I'm hearing there's going to be a lot of changes at Celtic Football Club. OK, we shall see. Uh, thanks for the moment, guys. Time to head into our final segment. And we've got another huge guest waiting for us in Footballers' Lives. Footballers' Lives. Well, our guest today is simply the greatest Australian coach that ever lived. Born in Greece in 1965, he came to Australia with his parents five years later and made his name as a player with South Melbourne, winning two NSL titles and four Australian caps. 
As the coach, he repeated the trick, lifting the title twice with Souths before leaving to coach the junior national teams of Australia. After a spell in Greece with Panahaiki, he returned to domestic football here with Brisbane Raw in 2009, where again he won the title twice. He returned to Melbourne with victory in 2012, but was headhunted for the Socceroos job a year later. He won the Asian Cup in 2015, qualified for the World Cup in 2018 before quitting in rather mysterious circumstances. But his reputation as a winner continues. Last year, he lifted the J-League title with Yokohama F. Marinos, and he joins us now from Japan, where he is preparing for the new season. It is a great pleasure to welcome Ange Postacoglu. Ange, great to have you with us. How are you? Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, great to be on uh, after uh, an unusual year, uh, I think, for all of us. Um, the, the ability to com- communicate at any level, I think, is still uh, is still a pressure commodity. So it's great to, to chat to you guys. Um, you're preparing for the new season, Ange, with Yokohama. Uh, last year, not quite as successful as the one that uh, went before. Did did COVID have a major bearing on that, do you think? Oh, to a certain extent. I mean, I, you know, it's pretty hard to win it every year. I mean, I know that uh, there's kind of yeah. uh, that expectation sometimes um, when you have success, uh, but it's a tough league and, um, you know, we're, we're not one of the, the big clubs. And, um, you know, last year we, there's definitely that had an impact on us, uh, COVID, in terms of, um, you know, our fixturing was was more challenging. And it wasn't just us. If you look at uh, Vissel Kobe and even FC Tokyo, who were, the year before, pretty strong teams. Uh, we all struggled because with Champions League commitments, all our sort of league fixtures were jammed in close together, which which didn't help us. Um, having said that, Kawasaki were outstanding last year. I, I think uh, you know, even if in a normal season, I think we would have uh, we would have had to go on pretty well to to top them because they were outstanding. And uh, there was a couple of other clubs that had strong seasons. So I think it was a combination of you know what happened with with COVID, obviously for us. Uh, but also this, the, the, the strength of the league. It's, it's a tough league. Yeah, your contract, contract has recently been extended there. Um, I also read you, you've assumed full control of the football department, which I think is, is probably a rarity for, for an Australian overseas. It sounds as though you're, you're pretty settled in Japan. Um, are you? Or, or is, the, is the desire to coach in Europe uh, still burning inside you? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm settled as, as I ever am. Um, you know, I've, uh, this is probably well. This will be equally the, the longest stint I've done in one place. I think, the, um, in terms of clubs, um, you know, I stayed at uh, South for four years, and then Brisbane three. Obviously, victory got cut short, and, and Panakeki. But you know, I'm going into my fourth season, and um, no, I mean, I, I'm loving the life here. Uh, the family's really happy, and and you know, the football's still very challenging for me. But um, you know, I, I'm never sort of. Uh, you know, anyone knows me well knows that I'm not. I'm never too settled. I'm always kind of itching for for a challenge, and uh, yeah, at the moment the challenge is still here. Uh, what to next? Um, we'll see. I mean, I I know you say a burning desire for Europe. I mean, I probably not as much as other people have me to, to go to Europe. My my burning desire is just to keep doing what I love and and keep getting challenged. And uh, you know, wherever that takes me, um, I've been pretty fortunate so far. I'm. I'll take the next step. But at, at the moment, as I said, looking ahead to the next 12 months anyway, um, yeah, big challenge ahead of us in, in the J-League and, and looking forward to it. Do you miss Australia at all? I mean, I remember you saying when you left, you felt that you and football here needed a break from each other. Do, do you still feel that way? 
Yeah, I think so. And I think the break's been healthy, to be honest, because, it, <laughs> um, you know, from my perspective, it was, you know, but coaching a national team um, when it's your own sort of national team, I think it, it's maybe different if you're if you're a foreigner coaching a national team. Uh, it is all-encompassing. And, and I guess the way I tried to do it, um, um, it, it did wear me out in the end where, you know, you, you kind of lose a little bit of the love for what you're doing and, and you you kind of lose a bit of the drive for why you're doing it. And, um, you know, I, I did. I, I needed some some time away from Australian football. I mean, I still keep an eye on it. I mean, I, the thing you miss is the people because I, I've my best friends in life have come out of football. Um, you yeah. know, where I started South Melbourne when I was 10 years old, uh, a lot of my great friends now that I've got in my adult life that are involved in football in Australia. And so I'm always abreast of it. I just, you know, I got sick of talking about it and I got sick of asking, being asked about it. And, and you know, I think in the end, people got sick of me talking about it. <laughs> it is now three years since you left the national team coaching job. I'm only going to ask you this once. Yeah. When you look back at what happens, do you have sort of any regrets at the way it played out or or your part in it? Um, in terms of the Socceroos, you mean? Um, yeah. Yeah, look, I... I don't have – the biggest thing is I don't have regrets around the decision. Um, do I have regrets around, you know, uh, some of the things that happened around it? Yeah, probably, but um, those kind of things are never perfect. But, but I don't regret the decision because, you know, apart from when, the, you know, when the boys, when the team was at the, the World Cup and obviously that, you know, that two-week period they were performing at the World Cup, that, that was the toughest time for me because you kind of – inevitably you project yourself there and you kind of think that, you know – if I was there, what what would I be doing? And um, but even then, I, I knew I'd made the right decision. It was for me, and again, I, I guess I've tried to explain it so many times. But as you said in your, your intro, it's still for many people a little bit of a mystery. Um, I gave up a lot without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, I think people overlook that to go to a World Cup is is the pinnacle. I mean, you, you look at so many great players and great managers, not just Australian, uh, and there are, there are many Australian examples, but, you know, overseas who have never been to a World Cup and they have, a, you know, they talk about the fact that they had this strong desire to get to one and I gave one away and um, so it wasn't an easy decision for me, but I had to stay true to my principles and what I believed in and I had to stay true to myself as a person. I, I just, I wouldn't be able to, yeah, you know, I think I would have regretted it if I didn't make that decision. But the circumstance around it, look, I mean, the biggest thing for me was I didn't really get a chance to to speak to the players about it and 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 the staff. And and I guess that's the only thing that I would have done differently uh, had my time again. When you look at the game in Australia now from afar, and you've had that distance and time to. Uh, not only reflect, but uh, maybe get a different sort of perspective on what goes on here. Has anything changed in the interim? No. Where's the game at? No, I'll tell you, and the perspective for me hasn't changed. I'll tell you what we're world-class at in Australian football. We're world-class at two things. One is having an opinion about how to make the game better, and secondly, um, seeing the the glass half empty. We're, We're just... And it still happens today. And, and you know, I, I, I'm i forever baffled at why people uh, continue to point out the challenges of the game, the problems of the game, 
um, the difficulties in getting the game right, when that, that hasn't changed, not just since the last three years, for the last 40 years. I mean, the problems and challenges we have today is as a footballing nation are the same ones we had 30 or 40 years ago. And, and people keep coming up with the same sort of opinions. If I see another study that tells me that our young players don't play enough football, <laughs> I mean, I, I really don't, I don't understand it anymore. And it was in the end, that was my frustration because I think for the game to change, it takes action, not opinion. Um, at the end of the day, you just have to do things rather than, you know, sit on the sidelines, suggest things or throw, you know, pot shots of people who are doing things. You just have to do things. And and to be honest, the answers are pretty simple. I mean, I, I've, you know, I've heard, you know, I feel sorry even for, for guys like who are in the media, you know, like yourself or even guys who, you know, guys like Maury and, and Spider on, you know, on your podcast and others who kind of are forced to explain why, you know, a transfer system would be good. I'm going, you don't have to explain why. Just look around the world. There's, it's not a magic formula. You know, we're not, why are we trying to invent something that already exists? What we should be doing is just taking the best bits of the way the game works around the world and putting them into our game. We're not that different, you know. We're not, we're not this unique beast on the, on, on the planet that needs to have its own version of what is the most popular game in the world. So... And that hasn't changed for me. I mean, I, I, I look, I'm, I'm, and this is, you know, it's going to end up being a long-winded answer, but, you know, I, I, I put this disclaimer because I'm, I'm close friends with, with Chris Nicker, who's the chairman, but the only, and one of the reasons he's one of my closest mates is that I've known him for a long time, is that he rarely gives an opinion about anything. He just, he's more of a guy who will just get things done. And if you look at his tenure since he started, you know, I think the first decision he had to make was, you know, whether to have expansion or not. And they, they bought in two new teams. Now, you can debate again whether they were the right two teams or the wrong two teams, but it happened. And then people wanted a, a football person, you know, at the head of of, of the, the, the federation. And again, whether you think James Johnson the right person, the right football person or not, he is a football person. So that's decisions being made. You know, he, 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 he bought home the World Cup. Uh, you know, he, he's not taking credit for it because other people did work for prior to him. But again, it was another box ticked and that's what we need at all levels we just need people to do things that, that mm. you don't need any more studies that's the first thing i'll tell people is you know don't need the best study i've read in the last 15 years was done by john didalika at the pfa and because that just charts our history and our history is and i'm not gonna you know bore you with poetry but i, I keep throwing this poem by eugene o'neill to people it, it describes australian football that australian football is no present there's no future. It's just the past repeating itself, and and we keep we keep to paraphrase Eugene O'Neill, of course. Um, that's that's Australian football. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> couldn't have said it much better, to be honest. Um, let's move in a, a slightly different direction. Um, I, I want to just talk briefly about. Uh, your early days as a player, uh, particularly with South Melbourne, you, uh, we mentioned you were part of those two title-winning teams. You're playing alongside players such as Oscar Crino and Kombutsianis, Paul Trimboli, Mickey Peterson. You played under Ferenc Pushkas, Len McKendry in those early title-winning days. Um, what are your memories of those days? How good were those players? And just in terms of the coaches, this is the second part of the question. Were they key in forging your coaching identity even at uh, at that early age? Um, yeah, look, a great time. But I mean, I think anyone, anytime you talk 
you know, to players of sort of our generation. Um, and I've heard, you know, a lot of guys who, who have been on your um, you know, podcast. And, and the dream for me was to play for South Melbourne. It wasn't necessarily to play for the Socceroos. It wasn't necessarily to, to play overseas. It was just, that was my team. I mean, I, I, I went down to the club as a, my dad took me down as a nine-year-old and I, and I never left. Um, you know, I was, I was playing as a junior outside the main stadium because uh, that's where the junior grounds were um, from the age of nine. And, and then on the weekends, I'd be ball boy at the club. So for me to actually, you know, play and represent the club that I loved um, and for us, you know, being, a, you know, migrants, it was not just the club, to be fair. It was, it was our whole social existence. So uh, as I said to you earlier, my best friends, today I met when I went as a nine-year-old to, to that club. They, they were playing in the same team and they're still my friends, my best friends today. So um, to actually play for the team and then, as you said, the players I played with, I mean, the first team I, I broke into in 84 uh, and Len McKendry was the coach, a fantastic, you know, a fantastic coach, a very successful coach. Um, we had internationals everywhere. We had, you know, as you said, Alan Davidson, uh, who, 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 played overseas and then came back later. Um, but Steve Blair, who was probably the biggest influence in my sort of playing career, um, Ken Murphy, uh, Charlie Egan, Dougie Brown. Um, I could go through the whole side, John Eisendorf, and they all played for the Socceroos at some point. I was the only, I think at one stage, non-Socceroo in the starting um, in the starting 11. You know, some fantastic players. Oscar Crino, he was, you know, as good a player as you'd ever want to come across technically, physically. Um, and then, you know, uh, moving on to later generation when Trimmers came in and, you know, we brought all these young players, Mehmet Jurakovic, um, uh, Peter Tsalakis, Kim Montalyadoros, uh, Wadey came down, Mickey P, who was, you know, just come back from being signed, you know, by Ajax as a teenager. Fantastic group of players, talented players and, and, a, and a tough league. I mean, you know, I was I was very much the, the battler in that team, but... Um, you know, I enjoyed every minute of it. And then, as you said, getting coached by, by Ferenc Puskas, who, you know, is, is the equivalent of, I don't know, to that one day somebody here being coached by a, a Lionel Messi because that's where Puskas was. He's in mm. any list of top 20 footballers of all time. He, he'll be in there, you know. And um, so it was great times. It was, it, And it wasn't just football. It was, it was the whole sort of everything that went around it. Uh, I, I struggled with my playing career, I, I'll be honest, because... Somewhere deep in the recesses of my brain, I knew I'd never conquer the world as a player, um, which was a, a little bit of a disappointment, I guess, to, to my dad and, and me. And, and so I struggled with my playing career, but um, that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. You know, lifting yeah. the, the championship with, with alongside Ferenc Puskas in, in 1990 is something that will stay with me forever. Probably gave you, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the impetus to, to push on as a coach. Uh, you, you had a long spell in charge of the Australian junior teams, as we mentioned, which uh, came to an end in 2007. I'm sure you knew I was going to ask you this question as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a very famous and, and fractious interview uh, with Craig Foster on SBS. Um, after which, I remember you telling me when we did some work together at, at Fox Sports that it, you actually felt unemployable for a long while after that. How do you view that uh, interview now? That, that's a question that was also sent in by uh, Simon Ferry on Twitter, incidentally, uh, asking you how you view that interview in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I view it the same way I did back then. You know, it just, 
I just didn't think feel, I didn't feel it was necessary. I didn't think it was productive. Um, you know, I, I've always been the kind of person who, you know, and I've had a lot of success in my career, but in difficult times, the few that I've had, I've always fronted up, you know, I, I didn't go hiding and, and I knew that interview wasn't going to go well because, you know, we just failed to qualify for, for the, both the world cups. It was our first time in Asia. Um, and I guess my reasoning be, be behind doing that interview was to try to explain people what was coming and, and that, you know, being in Asia, we weren't going to be able to just roll up to, to qualification tournaments as we were in Oceania and expect to, to go through them. And, that was at cross purposes, uh, you know, from, from what sort of what Foz had in his mind at the time. And that was that somebody had to be accountable. And, you know, that was me. And to be honest, I was already accountable. My contract was up with, 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 you know, Soccer Australia, or I don't even know what it was called back then. And, and um, I was done. So, but, you know, I just, like I said, I didn't think it was necessary. I think, you know, I was already, you know, the, the accountability already stood with me, but what it did do, as, as you said, it, it did, it, it did make me unemployable. I mean, I, I couldn't even get an assistant coach's role. It's the reason I went to Greece for 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 a year because, you know, I wasn't going to let, you know, Australian football stop me from from my ambitions as a coach. Um, and, you know, it was it was disheartening because I just felt, well, you know, everything I'd done at South Melbourne had been forgotten about as a manager. Um, and, you know, even my time at, at with the young teams, you know, the, the first couple of cycles, I mean, in... in 2003, we, we, we knocked off Brazil in the UAE. I mean, still the last game we've ever won is another 20 team. And I thought I'd shown enough to at least be given an opportunity, but I didn't think it was going to happen. And, and that interview played a big part in it. But, you know, as in all things in life, mate, we, we take our knocks and, and we move on. And, uh, and fair to say that, you know, it didn't hold me back for too long. Sure didn't. Um, Brisbane gave you that chance that you wanted in the A-League. Um, we all know about the successes and we'll come on to that. But at that first year, you, you cleared out a lot of senior players um, and asked the fans to give you a year before being judged. That first year, though, was a tough one. You didn't make the finals. You didn't win a lot of games. Was, was there a time during that period where you thought, here we go again, it's going to happen again? No, not really, because it, it, I kind of, you know, it, it, I, I wasn't taking over. It wasn't a full year, or, you know, I sort of, uh, I took over from, from Frank Farina. Uh, it was a few games into the season, and um, so the, the squad is already established. And it was a, you know, it was a strong squad. I mean, you're talking, uh, you know, I think they'd made a couple of preliminary finals before that. Um, you know, Frank would still have been the coach if, if you know, what happened with him hadn't happened. So it wasn't like I was taking over from somebody who was unsuccessful. Uh, it's a bit different. So, but in my mind, I kind of knew that there was a certain way I wanted to do things. Um, the one thing my seven years of you know, coaching the national youth teams, it allowed me, you know, a, a, what I call a PhD in coaching because I literally traveled the world, um, you know, as, as manager of the, the young Socceroos and the Joeys going to different World Cups, going to different countries. I always made sure that, you know, wherever we went, I, I stayed on, I studied, I, I, I looked on what was going on and, and I had a clear idea in my head about how I wanted the team to play. And, you know, you, you, you said I got rid of a lot of players. A lot of players just left. Um, I, I think the one thing you realise as you go on as, as as a coach or a manager, if you stay in it for long enough, you come to realise that you, you, you can't be, you know, that, you know, a fantastic manager for all players. It just doesn't doesn't work. Some players, some some very good players, you know, probably 
wouldn't like being managed by me. And, and you know, you come to t- not take that personally. I mean, I, I, you know, I heard, I think it was Luke Wilkshire on, on, on your program saying the only time he didn't enjoy the Socceroos was under me. And I, I kind of understand that because, you know, I'm not for everyone. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's a certainty. And, and at that time when I took over, I did things differently at Brisbane and a lot of the senior players decided on their own volition that, that they wanted to leave. Maury was one of them and he'll testify to this that, you know, I, I was keen for Maury to stay, but for one reason or another, and I think, you know, Maury had a, had a, a world cup to look forward to that, um, yeah, he didn't feel staying with me was probably going to be the right way to, for him to go forward, and 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 he decided to leave. But again, I didn't take that personally, and probably yeah, Maury probably think I thought I did until we we sort of worked together, brought him back in for the Socceroos. But you know, I've never taken that stuff personally. So when players left, um, that wasn't a massive issue for me, and I, I knew how I wanted the team to play. Um, I knew that we would be successful playing that way because I knew that no team in the A-League was playing that way. And if I got the right players in, which I was confident of doing, that after that first sort of six months I had at Brisbane, we would get it right and we would be successful. And the outside external pressure is always there. But for me, the the, the people who were inside the club, particularly you know the owners at the time, um, you know, they, they saw what I was doing and were, were confident we turned it around and, and gave me that opportunity to do it. They certainly did. And uh, we certainly enjoyed watching Raw Salona, um, a style of football still judged by many to have been the best they've ever seen in the A-League. Um, I certainly subscribe to that. And that 36 game on beaten run, which, which was uh, absolutely incredible as well. Um, a Twitter question from Matt McGurr. This leads us back onto your uh, days with the, with the Socceroos, Ange. How much pride did winning the Asian Cup bring you? And would you ever consider taking the role again in future? He also says, P.S., thanks for the memories. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, look, the Asian Cup is a funny one for me because irrespective of what I think of it, I just don't think as a nation we've taken a great deal of pride in that achievement unfortunately um it, it if anything it, it it left me a bit empty after we won it because it's just we 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 seem to just the next day get on with it it's not what i thought how i thought we'd we'd celebrate it because um maybe i don't know that there's something in us that that we don't maybe we don't rate the asian cup as a, a significant I'll, I'll give you a, a sort of a parallel if you look at my birth country greece they've been to three world cups but it there is no doubt that if you ask any person in Greece who loves football, what is the greatest achievement of their national team? It's it's winning the European Championship. You know that'll mm. forever be remembered. And and you know Hadi Steas is is a hero in Greece because of that. Now is James Troisi felt by the same way for his goal winning us the Asian Cup? I don't think it is. And and because of that, um, don't get me wrong, it's it. I'd say great pride in 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 winning the the Asian Cup, but I, I I wasn't doing it for me. It was I wanted I wanted to do something for our nation to make it feel like we've done something special. And I'll be honest, I mean, you know, people have you know, you know obviously have it as an achievement and, and one of our greatest achievements as a nation. But um, I, I don't think it's been given. Uh, you know, the, the, the respect that, that it should have. And, and that's a shame because, again, it's another it was an opportunity for us to progress our game. And, and again, as I said, we're, we're, a fan, we're world class at uh, half glass empty. And to me, that was a missed opportunity to, to really 
take the Socceroos to another level, take our game to another level to say, you know what, here, we've done something really special here. Couldn't agree more. And I think, uh, obviously, our fear is that uh, we have a Women's World Cup here in three years' time and that uh, something similar is going to happen. And after the six-week uh, hubris or, or hoopla is, is out of the way, then what will be the legacy of it? Anyway, that's probably a different uh, podcast. Uh, I want to ask you one more, Andrew, and then I'll, I'll move on to some Twitter questions. I'm, I'm aware that uh, we, we kept you for quite some time already. Um, are you still evolving as a coach? And if so, what's, what's your next evolution? Or, or on a broader term, what, what's the next big tactical evolution to, uh, to strike football? Where, where do you think it's headed? Yeah, no, <laughs> definitely, um, definitely evolving. You have to, Simon. I, I think my my greatest achievement is that you know I, my first, and I had to reflect on it um, this week because of the passing of Frank Arrock. Because you know my first coaching job, I was assistant to Frank at South Melbourne in in 1995. Now that's 26 years ago, and and I took over from him in '97. So that's you now 24 years ago. In those 24 years. Um, you know, I think there was only that eight-month period where I hadn't been coaching um, after sort of before the Brisbane job. And if you just think about how the world's changed in those, you know, 24, 25 years that I've been coaching, um, you have to have evolved uh, um, mainly, I think, in, in the way you communicate to, to survive and to be successful because, you know, we're talking pre-social media. We're talking pre-even, you know, the the that access to, to even mobile, the accessibility of mobile phones and everything and, and the way young people communicate. I mean, I'm talking to guys, you know, I'm trying to sort of motivate and, 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 and try to educate, you know, young people who were born in the 90s and, and they're a different breed from the guys I was coaching back in the 90s. So you have to evolve the way you communicate, the way you talk to people, the way you understand people, you have to evolve and, and the game evolves. I mean, the, the, the game is constantly changing. Um, so I, I've always had a, a real strong core belief in how the game should be played and what the core elements of that are. And I think that, you know, everyone in Australia knows that pretty clearly for me that, that you know, I'll get the team to play a certain way. And, and that that's never changed. But the way I I communicate that to the players, the way I get that done has it has to have evolved. And, and it'll have to keep evolving because the game is constantly changing. Um, the way the game's analysed these days... Um, the, the, the way that information is, is gathered by, you know, by people has changed. So there's, you know, the, there aren't too many secrets in football anymore. You know, you, if, you, if you try a, a something different tactically, um, it'll get picked up straight away and, and that information will be disseminated. So, you know, all those kind of things mean that the, the game will constantly evolve. And, and you know, I, I think when you look at the, the trends in football, what, is fairly evident is that you know games are, are becoming um, higher tempo. Um, there's less rigidity in, in formations. There's less you know players are becoming more multifunctional in that you know they're, they're you know goalkeepers who play with their feet or defenders who can play out from the back, uh, strikers who are prepared to press. All those kind of things are, are becoming more and more um, prevalent, which means the game's going to take an evolution. And I, I just think that's where it'll come, but. I think the basic cause of what each coach believes um, still remains and 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 what is really clear still, to me anyway, is that the most successful coaches have a real clear identity. They 
when you watch their teams play, irrespective of where they are, which league or which club they're at, um, you know, you can see see their imprint on it. They're not they're not copying anyone else. That's their team, and uh, mm. I think that'll be consistent in the future. Fascinating stuff. Um, let's lead on to a few, <clears throat> excuse me, Twitter questions uh, to finish off. Some random topics will go uh, left field. But this one sort of follows on from what you were just saying. This comes from W League Stroke, A League en Francais. Uh, and the question is, what is the one thing you've had to compromise on or change to succeed in Japan, given the difference in culture? It's our question of the week. Uh, congratulations. You win a $100 for Outback Steakhouse, which we'll get off to you. Oh, there's uh, look. I, I guess the biggest thing for me was, you know, you, you deal, you are dealing with a different culture, but even bigger than that, a different language. Um, that was the greatest challenge for me coming in here. Is uh, again, anyone who sort of knows me and, and, and the way I coach, a, a big part of that is, you know, I, I, I do like to to motivate players and tell tell a story about you know what we're trying to achieve because the way we want to play, you have to be brave. You have to sort of do things a little bit differently and. Uh, it's a lot easier to people get buy-in for that when they believe in something. And, and the way I've made them believe in the past is is by telling them a story of, of, of achieving something special. Now, when the power of language is taken away from you, I have to go through an interpreter. Um, I've had to sort of really adjust the way I say that message. And I've had to economise with my words and, 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 and probably be clear with my actions as to, you know, what we're actually about to embark on. And, yeah, that first year... Um, with Yokohama, that was that was probably the biggest obstacle I had to overcome. The team understood how we wanted to play, and certainly we had elements of it, but there wasn't a total buy-in because I just don't think my message was was clear enough uh, enough about it. Um, yeah, to to you know to sort of uh, again paraphrase paraphrase a movie. It was it was lost in translation, I think, in in many mm. respects. Um, and I had to sort of change it the second year and just make sure that. As much as what I said, what I did was was going to be really important to show the players that, you know, our football was going to be brave. It's going to be adventurous. It's going to be, you know, the the, the Japanese culture overall. They're a very conservative nation. Um, their football is surprisingly conservative. The league, um, it's becoming a little bit more open now. But uh, so I had to change the mindset of particularly the Japanese players who had been brought up a certain way to tell them that look, don't fear. Don't fear um, losses. Don't fear mistakes. Um, let's let's be bold about what we do. And and um, you know, I adjusted the way I, I delivered that message in the second year. And and you know, it was uh, it worked. You speak any Japanese, Ange? It's too difficult for me, mate. And I, I, <laughs> I tried, and and you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll get by ordering a coffee. Um, but that's that's not saying much. I mean, I think again, if you talk to Mori or, or Spider. Guys like us can, can order a beer and a coffee in about three different languages. <laughs> um, I don't think that's anything to, to be proud of, though. But uh, uh, it's a very brilliant. difficult language. I, I, I've struggled with it. But I've got a fantastic interpreter who, who does a great job for me. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> slightly different question. For, we sort of touched on this a little bit, but from Lewis Alexo, did the Sydney media mafia, those are his words, not mine, uh, play a key role in him resigning as Socceroos coach? That'd be you, uh, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> Am I part of the mafia? Yeah, yeah, well, I'm assuming. Look again. I, I guess. Um, look, from my perspective, it was it was part of the conversation I wanted to have, and 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 I think you've mentioned it a few times that I was one of the ones that said, "Look, look we want more scrutiny. We want more." Yeah. 
Um, and 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 from my perspective, it was people. I wanted people to understand that that sort of um, criticism, provided it wasn't sort of personal or you know, a lot of times I felt it was agenda driven, but irrespective, yeah. that kind of discussion is healthy. But that doesn't mean that I had to be happy with it. I mean, and 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 again, that's where once again we we got it wrong. We we did it sort of half full, where I felt a lot of the media, um, you know, they did go after me, and and you know that there's nothing wrong with that. I don't see any. If people have an opinion, a strong opinion, they should express it. But at the same time, I don't have to be happy with that. I mean, if you walk into a press conference in the UK and you give Jose Mourinho a question he doesn't like, he's not going to say, well, fair play to you. He's, he's going to bite back. And you've, got, and, and you've got to be prepared to take that both ways. And that was my whole discussion. And, and, and that's what I wanted in Australia. I'll, I'll give you a good example. And, 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 and Spider's the example, right, where I remember, I forget which soccer game it was, and he had a bit of a crack at me on, on, on I think it was on the World Game or something like that. And, you know, he, he just, you know, he obviously felt strongly about a poor performance or something. I can't remember what it was about, to be honest. But he had a fair crack at me. And about two days later, I was at a function and he happened to be there. And he was about, you know, you know how big Spider is. He's about four mm. metres away. He goes, and he just screamed, Ange, how you going? Come over here. Say hi. And I've just said, you just smashed me two days ago. But you have, I went over and I said hi to him and, and it was fine. It's it's not, it wasn't a problem. I wasn't happy with what he said. But you know what? That's that's what football's about. I love the passion that it shows. So was I happy? Did I think some of that criticism was warranted? No, because I, I felt people forgot the journey we were on. They forgot what I took over. I didn't take over the golden generation. And that's not having to go at the players that, that I coached, was that I had to build a new team. And in that four years that I was in charge of the Socceroos, we won an Asian Cup and we qualified for a World Cup. Now, that hasn't been done before by any coach. And I hope somebody else does it in the future. But it's not an easy task to do that in four years. And, you know, the fact that we went through the, the playoffs, okay, people don't seem to think that's anything great. But you know how many times we've been tripped over at playoffs before? Um, people forget that history. So I wasn't happy with the way that people responded to the fact that, you know, okay, I maybe put qualification at risk because I wanted to play a certain way. But that was the whole point of me taking over. But having said all that, that didn't make drive me to a decision to leave because I, that that stuff is part of what we do. That I, you know, I love that passion that people have. I wanted more people to be passionate about it. I used to get annoyed if somebody outside football would criticise me who never even looked at the game before because I'm saying, well, you know what? If you want to, if you want an opinion, buy into the game and then I'll listen to you. So, no, they didn't drive me out, and and I didn't have a problem with it uh, in terms of making that decision to leave because of that, but I didn't like it either. So, but that's, that's okay as well. Just to underline how passionate Ange was uh, about that uh, media involvement was, I, I do remember when we were on tour away with the Socceroos at that time, there was quite a posse of, of journalists that used to follow the national team overseas. I'm not sure that will be the case today because yeah. there's not many of us left. But in those days, uh, if one of us didn't turn up for a press conference, you would physically say, where's yeah. X yeah. or where's Y? Why isn't he at the press conference? Yeah. Yeah. Which is the first time I've ever experienced that as yeah. a journalist. I, mean, I thought that was great. And then they tell me, you know, he was off doing, you know, checking out some site or something and you know that's you know I, that's the, yeah like i said I, I just want i wanted people to be passionate about our game yeah. and when you have passion you're going to have differing opinion 
there's nothing wrong with that. We can all live in the same big tent and and, and absolutely. Last one, uh, Ange, and then we'll let you go. This is from Luke J. Uh, how does Ange feel about being the most revered Australian coach? And what was his advice to the likes of Pete Klamowski and Arthur Pappas about what they should be looking for when stepping out for their own opportunities? Good question. Yeah, look, uh, look, I, I don't think too much about sort of my my sort of standing as a coach. I, I've 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 been pretty blessed that you know I've I've as I you know like most people who do what I do or in a similar vacation that, you know, I've, I've dodged having a real job my whole life. I, I love what I do. And, you know, I've, I've had, you know, a lot of success, but you know, the success hasn't been the important thing. The important thing is the people I've shared it with the players, the, the staff that I've shared all that, that journey with, like I said, they, you know, ends up, they end up being friends of mine. And, and I think what you understand and, and all the coaches I've worked with or I've had working with me is to try and make them understand is that, you know, even even at South Melbourne, I mean, Mickey Peterson took, you know, he was my assistant. He took over from me. He was a fantastic coach. Unfortunately, you know, he, he hit those days of sort of the demise of the NSL and, and couldn't have a career. But I've taken great pride in making sure that all the guys who work with me, if, if they want a career, then, you know, I'll, I'll help them. I'll, I'll, I'll give them that opportunity because it's the one thing that I – didn't like when I wasn't working was that people weren't open prepared to open any doors for me. As I said, when you know I was virtually unemployable and I couldn't believe that there wasn't anyone in the football industry who would open a door for me. And I've made sure that you know, especially especially since the days of the young Socceroos, that you know I, I've always given opportunities to, to to young coaches who 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 want to have a career in it. And my message to them is the same. And 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 the message is you. You have to embrace the struggle. You cannot think that there's going to be any moment in your career where things are going to be uh, smooth sailing, or you, you know, this um, this golden ticket of a lifetime contract at a club where you're never going to be under pressure does not exist. Um, being a coach means that you have to embrace the struggle. You have to embrace the pressure of it. You you, you have to enjoy that part of it because that is the one constant. You can't tell me that. You know, uh, even after this morning that Jurgen Klopp is not feeling the pressure of not winning and he's at the moment the most successful manager in the world. He's done the unbelievable thing. But what you come to understand is that you embrace that part of it. You you can't avoid it. And if you do that, then whatever challenges you may have ahead of you, I'll give you Muskie as an example. Muskie is a fantastic coach. I've got no doubt Kevin Muskie will be a successful coach. Um, long term, and he'll get it. He'll get an opportunity at the right time, um, and he'll be a success. What he has gone through is just part of the journey. It doesn't mean that he's not. He, he has to change himself, or he's not successful. It's it's just part of the journey of if you want to stay in the game for, you know, like me, twenty five years, then accept that part of it. And then the success and all that sort of stuff. That's 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 the stuff you reflect on and that's great, but understand that they're the only the small snippets The the majority of it, it's a struggle. It's, it's constantly overcoming doubters and challenges, but you have to enjoy that. I've said many times, my most enjoyable periods in my coaching have not been when I've won. It's when I, at the beginning, when I'm building a team and we're struggling and no one else can see what I see, that's the most enjoyable bit for me. And then the success, well, the success everyone enjoys in. So you know, for all these guys who have worked with me and, and uh, I'm getting Hutch on board now, who, who I'm really looking forward to working with, um, I hope they all have successful careers and um, a successful career in my definition is that they're still working in 25 years' time. 
Well, Ange, if they do half as well as you've done, then they'll be doing okay. Uh, we thank you for not only your time today, but all those uh, wonderful memories with both uh, the Socceroos and Brisbane Raw. And who knows, maybe one day we'll see you back uh, coaching in Australia. I'm sure we'll see you back in this country at some stage in any case. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, yeah, good luck for the upcoming season with, uh, with Yokohama F Marinos. Thanks, Simon. Pleasure talking to you, mate. Thank you. And that is us for another week. Our thanks to Ange Postacoglu and to you for listening. We'll be back with another edition, same time, same place next week. Until then, bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.